Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Patricia Oss, who is a programmer, speaker, trainer, and CTO of TurtleSec based in Oslo, Norway. Patricia, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, thank you for having me. So first off, given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few key indicators that a software's application's code base is well-maintained? Well, mostly today, at least, I would be looking for tests. I would be looking for continuous integration. I would be looking for some kind of way of looking at this in some kind of visual manner. Because if a project is well-maintained, today means it's being actively developed and and you will have the tooling for people to collaborate. So I think that's the first thing I would look for actually walking in is because the thing is when people care about something, they've they've set up uh, infrastructure around the code. And so that's the first thing I would see. And I would realize that people are actively working on it and that people care and it matters. Uh, And then I would start looking at the code. But if you have all of those things in place, generally people are actively looking at the code and caring about its quality. And so that is a good sign. So when you talk a little bit about, like, say, an application has a test suite, I'm assuming you're speaking to automated tests versus like a checklist for a QA person to work through. So when you have these tools set up, do you feel like a lot of these tools are making the lives of software developers easier than, say, they were 10 to 15, 20 years ago? I don't know. We had similar types of tools that were generally like, at least in the projects where I was working, they were often like handmade. You didn't have off-the-shelf things. People made tooling themselves. So I'm not sure. Today you get a lot of stuff for free and a lot of really fancy things. I think a lot of the same things have been present for a long time. Like when I started out, we used to chat on IRC, and today everybody chats on, on Slack, but it's, it's the same thing. It's just prettier colors. So, yeah. We get the little embedded in animated GIFs now that we didn't have back then. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we used to slap each other around with the wet trout. So, you know, in one of your talks, titled Reading Other People's Code, you outline the distinction between approaching other people's code to learn versus, say, criticizing, and how that might change your ability to comprehend the code base. What do you believe are some common mistakes that you see when programmers begin reviewing other people's code? I think the most important mistake, although I don't think people mean to do it, is the idea that they think that they're there to critique it. And then they usually get stuck right away by being annoyed by formatting or being annoyed by style or being annoyed by, oh, in this project, they name their variables in strange ways, and they never really get past it. And so they think they have to like, okay, then we have to like redo all of the code in our style so that I even manage to look at it. Putting that aside and instead of trying to make it look like you're used to and accepting that it's different and accepting it just as the way it is, and instead try to figure out how it works and what was the thought behind it. Like, what did, did the people think when they made this and what were they thinking? And sometimes you will find, it's a little bit like archaeology, right? You'll mm-hmm. find traces of old plans and things that didn't actually pan out or the beginning of new plans that aren't yet finished. 
when you start digging into it and and stop looking at the surface, then you actually find out the real structure underneath. I've had a number of guests talk about and bring up archaeology as like a there's some correlation there. And you're trying to tell the story about the code and you don't always have information to knowing what the constraints the previous programmers had at that point in time or the information they had. Or maybe they're new to this programming language or framework or whatever you're using. And who knows? You, you don't always have the full picture there. And they might have had, like you said, constraints that are no longer existent. And those constraints might not be technological or they might not even be in the code. They could be constraints in the organization. They could be like they weren't allowed really to work on this project. So it was something they kind of had to do, you know, as a side project, which wasn't really sanctioned. And there's like all sorts of stories and things that you might not know and reasons for things being the way they are. Like few projects start off successful. They start off as like small things, play things, and then suddenly they become successful. And then suddenly, oh yeah, okay, I didn't really actually design it. It grew into this. And then suddenly people are like, oh, if you're going to have professional software, yeah, well, I, I didn't actually start off as professional. It started off as a play thing. And and so people think there's going to be some kind of smooth curve from small and trying things out to professional software. But there's generally a lot of bumps in the road going in that direction. Yeah, I want to dive deeper into this with you. Reflecting back on, you know, that talk that I was previously watching that you given called Reading Other People's Code, we don't need to go into all 10 techniques that you outlined in your talk. What are a few important things for, say, our listeners to consider when they start reviewing other people's code? One thing that I realized that a lot of people don't know is how you debug. I'm not talking about debugging as in debugging as a technique to fix bugs, but using a debugging as a technique to understand running code. And then I realized that people who are used to working backend, they tend to use a debugger a lot. So they will set lots of breakpoints. They will do a lot of stepping. And they will be often be very annoyed with front-end developers who don't do that much. And the reason why, and that's the thing that I realized, is that they don't understand why the other work so differently. But back-end code is, as a rule, highly synchronous code. So stepping and setting breakpoints and stepping through code makes a lot of sense. You can do that over long stretches, and it makes a lot of sense. Front-end code is hardly asynchronous, so it's constantly doing callbacks. So you're like, yeah, okay, do something, call me back when you're finished. It makes it really, really hard to be stepping in the code. So they will do a lot of logging and then maybe setting some breakpoints. But what they'll do when they come to a breakpoint, they'll just continue to the next breakpoint. And so it's a very different type of structure. But it can be very frustrating when, when a back-end developer and a front-end developer sit together trying to understand something because they both feel the other has like a weird way of working. But it's a very different world and how the code is is very different. And so it, it requires different techniques. What are some other things that people should be considering when they're starting to review other people's code? Aside from knowing that there are some differences when you like how back-end and say front-end developers and just to make sure to understand the distinction there in your world, given like, I think you work in C++ a lot, are you talking about like GUI apps and stuff like that, like desktop applications or some web as well? So I've done web, Java, backend. I even did some C-sharp this year. I've done a lot in C++, but in C++ I've also done a lot of front-end and more platform-oriented hmm. code. So my full stack goes from assembly to JavaScript. 
I guess that's why I've worked in many different kinds of projects. I've had to to learn different types of techniques. I think the most important part of understanding how a program works is trying to figure out what are you interested in learning because programs are generally very big. Even if it's like a library or framework, they're generally very big. And most of it is not interesting to you at the moment. You're generally interested in some piece of the functionality. And so finding the code that has to do with the functionality you want to look at and then being able to analyze it, both in code, but also runtime. And through those two, try to build a mental model because that's the problem, right? When you code, you have a mental model and then you're kind of serializing that mental model into code. But you still have the mental model. So when you look at the code, you kind of still have the mental model in your head. And the problem is when you get somebody else's code, you don't have a mental model. All you have is like this code. It doesn't speak to you. It doesn't just rise up out of the page and just like, hoo-hoo, here we are. And this is the machine I was trying to build. And so people tend to uh, complain a lot in the beginning, like, oh, where's the documentation? And where's blah, blah, blah. Of course, they don't make that for their own code, but <laughs> but when it's somebody else's code, they really want that. So that's basically what you need to build. You need to build those drawings. And and if you do that, like you write, you make the drawings to understand how things hook up, then contributing that back to the project is a really good way of saying thank you. It's like, I made these drawings about how things work. I think they're right, but maybe you can correct my mental model. And I was thinking maybe we could have it in like the introduction tutorial to this framework. And that's something that generally people would be really happy about. Or this is like a quick startup guide, like how to get to Hello World or things like that, that you learn that you can refine a little bit and then contribute back. I think that's a really important thing to touch on there in terms of when you are joining, as I say, a guest to an existing project, one of the very first things you can do is to contribute back to helping get the thing up and running in your own environment or however however that would work in that technical stack and reviewing code. And I mean, it's important to, it's a, it's a good way to contribute and show that you, you as a guest uh, certainly wrap your head around some of it. You may not have everything figured out at this point yet, but it's a good way to contribute. Like when we work with other companies that have their own developers on projects, that always feels like a really good way to contribute first is like a pull request to improve documentation or something, or, Hey, we updated the Confluence documentation or, what have you. I think you brought up some good ideas about, you know, drawing out some, you know, maybe the data model or architecture and like providing some drawings to show how things kind of fit together and make sure that that kind of aligns with their understanding. That helps because hopefully that'll help the next person that has to come in. You can generally get people to to tell you things. If you show them, like, this is how I understand things work. And then they'll go like, okay, yeah, this is sort of how it works, but you missed this part. And then suddenly they'll explain things that were, because I read once about a compiler project. They had done two handoffs. So you basically have three different teams who, who took over the same code base. Uh, so you had the team that developed it, and then you had the next team. And they sat next to each other for like, three months. And the handoff was really smooth. And then they did the second handoff, but they did it just sent the code to a team in a, like, in a different country. And it was a disaster. And then they were like, why was it a disaster? The first handoff went fine. And then they didn't realize that, yeah, these teams are sitting next to each other. So these people were running back and forth, asking questions and all of these things. We are human beings and how we learn and how we learn about code is often through other people. So building relationships with the people who know the code and not being antagonistic, but being like in a learning mindset 
it's really important to sit down and say, okay, I, I tried to understand this, but I didn't understand. This is how I think it is. Is this right? It's a much better place to actually get to learn something than to sit down and say, oh, this, all of this is really bad. And I'm da, 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 da. It's, it, nobody's going to respond to that. Nobody's going to tell you the things that you need to know. So being more empathetic and understanding that people live in a context and uh, things aren't always as simple as they seem. It's true. If it is the scenario where you've got, say, new developers joining an existing team or their consultants joining that existing team, we sometimes are part of projects where there is no previous team around. It's just like, hey, this has been running. It's been up and running successfully the last several years. We lost our last developer recently. We only had one person maintaining it for the last year. Kind of in a fuzzy state of like, we don't really know, but we just want to keep it running smoothly. And they're like, we don't always have that backstory like directly available. So, But we still run into the same challenges. Yeah, yeah, no, but you still have to do it, right? So then you have to build it from scratch. And I've done that a bunch of times as well. And it's a lot harder. But one of the first things that I do in that kind of situation is, first of all, I need to get like the tools in place, get a build environment, get build server, get continuous integration, get tests, put like all of these things, put them in place, get everything in source control. If it's not in source control, get all of the things in place and then try to be able to build exactly what they're running in production. Because until then, you're basically on a bench. Because very often, when people are in that state, they don't even know what's running in production. It's like, I don't know. Somebody did something. They put it in production last year sometime. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was from their machine. I don't even know if it matches what's in source control. So you kind of have to, so the beginning has to be like, get yourself to one same starting point and move on from there. But that's also a good learning process because while you're setting all of this up, you are learning a lot about the project. And then when you have all of this set up, you're in a much safer place to actually make changes. Yeah, it's true. And on the other end, when you are working with an existing team, I think you said building a relationship with the other engineers in the project, being empathetic towards them and understanding you're not there to critique or that or help improve things and help them help improve things as well. You may or may not be going in there with hopefully not with like a hero mentality that you're here to save the day necessarily, but you are being called in for your expertise. But part of that is also knowing how to navigate that smoothly so that they accept you as one of theirs in, in a way I think is, is important too. So you build trust and then that way you can help them move things in a different direction if they've been kind of stuck in a certain mindset. Let's take a moment to learn a little bit more about TurtleSec. What prompted you to start your own business and what types of problems are you helping organizations solve? Well... I've been thinking about starting a company for a while. And what I've been very interested in for the last few, I don't know, like probably actually throughout my career is the intersection of security with programming. Because I worked as a programmer since I finished my master's in 2005 and I started working on the Opera browser. And I think very oftentimes your first job kind of defines what you think job is <laughs> and so my first job was working on a browser and browsers are, are popular targets for security researchers and hackers and, and whatever you know and so for us to be dealing with security was something that we and and privacy because we were dealing with people's personal information was something we thought about as a part of our job and so I thought it was like that everywhere. But after a while, I realized that it wasn't like that everywhere. And uh, But I've continued to work in, in projects like that. I worked in Embedded, where I was making telepresence systems. And then I worked on a browser again, the Vivaldi browser. But I've always been interested in how can you better teach that part 
how developers can deal efficiently with security through their tooling and how they work today and how maybe they can develop to become even better in that aspect as programmers. So I've been, I was thinking I was going to start uh, the company this year, actually. <laughs> I was thinking, okay, so 2019, yeah, I'll try to start the company. And so I thought I'd tell my husband because, you know, I didn't really have a good plan and I didn't really have any customers. And so I thought, you know, I'd just give him a good year to get used to the idea that I was planning on quitting my job and not really having a good plan. <laughs> so we're sitting there over breakfast and I started the conversation. And the worst way you can start a conversation with a partner, actually, I said, I have something to tell you. It's a good way to start. A good opener. <laughs> yeah, it's a really bad opener. It's like, pro, pro tips, don't do that. And then, you know, I told them I was thinking about starting a company. And it's like, yeah, but it's been a year, so don't worry, and blah, blah, blah. And then he gets all quiet, and he's like, and I was like, okay, we have to say something, you know, because I'm worried here. And he's like, all quiet. And then he's like, okay, just give me a second thinking. And I'm like, okay, are you done thinking? And then in the end, he was like, okay, I think that's a great idea. I'm going to quit my job and work for your company. Oh, wow. What company? I have, like, I bought a domain name. So suddenly he just did. He he basically got a client and started the company and quit his job within two weeks. And then suddenly he had started the company and I still had a real job. So suddenly there was a company in the world. And then I was thinking, okay, maybe I should also just kind of jump. I mean, we were already making money and it was possible to do. So I basically... I gave it a shot and it's been a lot of fun. Like we're working in that intersection between security and programming and, and working with lots of different clients with lots of different problems, especially clients that maybe haven't like in the small, medium sized companies that haven't really had much in this area. Maybe they had a little bit like in network security, but how do they deal with it in application security and how do they deal with what happens if they have a breach, what, how are they going to handle these things? We help them in different ways. Like it could be working as a programmer in the team, but it can also be coming in and doing workshops with the developers, trying to figure out what are the things they're worried about? How can they maybe address those things? How can they install automatic tooling in their regular pipelines or in their IDEs or monitoring, additional monitoring that would look for specific security things and how can that integrate into their existing monitoring? Because what I believe is that you can't have security as like a separate domain. It has to be integrated with all of the other domains. And the security incident very often will just look like any other incident in production. And so all of your regular tooling will also notice. You will have, let's say that you're being hit by a DDoS attack or something like that. You will have lots of your regular monitoring going off the routes, so they basically saying like, oh my gosh, it's like something's happening. We're getting like 10,000 more requests than we're used to. And so I believe all of these things have to be together and not be something you think about later. And I think developers are perfect for integrating the tools they need into their pipeline, especially in this like DevOps type of age. So I think it's a great opportunity for a lot of companies to take this on. That's great. And thanks for sharing some background on how we need to have a conversation or we need to talk. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection of programming and security when you're helping different organizations navigate this and maybe getting some tooling in place or better understand this? Do you often get into the 
like kind of the ethics of privacy or security, like as just like being baked in as part of the programmer's responsibility. I've seen people talk about this a little bit more recently on the designer side of things, like folks that are designing and like, we're all in some ways designing as well, but I've, it's been something I've, I've seen people talking about a little bit more. And I was just curious if you had kind of a, a take on that. Luckily, most of the people that I talk to that are in the industry, they care a lot. They care a lot about their end users. They care a lot about the products they make. There's an amazing amount of caring. If end users knew how much we cared about them, they'd be really surprised. But at the same time, you see that us as an industry, we, we are making things that are, are not good for humanity, are not necessarily good for the environment or democracy or human rights. And that is something that I think we need to take on. And we need to realize that maybe we haven't been good enough at defining ethical guidelines. We haven't been good at discussing the ethics of things. We need to go in that direction to make sure that we are actually doing the best for our end users. And our end users are, are a diverse group of people in any kind of direction when it comes to ability and gender and ethnicity and language. I mean, we have been terrible at making UI interfaces for people who write to left languages, for example. And I think that also has to do with the fact that the industry hasn't been very diverse. I think if we had people in our teams that wrote right to left languages, then we would have made UIs that were good for flipping. And so I think a big part of us being able to make better things is also including larger parts of the population in making things. And I think that would make us make much better things that are much more suited for the population and probably take into account problems that we might not have ourselves. I was reading this book recently. I can't remember the title of it. It's by a designer named Mike Montero. And he was talking about the ethics of being a designer and how he was talking about how everybody expects their doctor to adhere to their oath that they take. And we're making, we're designing and building things that have a lot of impact on the world. I think sometimes we're like, oh, I'm just writing some code for a web app or a website and whatever. It's not that big of a deal. But some of these things do have a lot of impact on a wide number of people. Small percentage of Twitter or Facebook's user group is millions of people. That's not insignificant. So pivoting there a little bit, as you reflect on your experiences in the industry, do you find yourself on Team Rewrite or Team Refactor more often? I think when I was younger, like in the beginning, I would have been probably on Team Rewrite. But as I've become more experienced, I'm on Team Refactor big time because we have a tendency to not appreciate all of the corner cases that have been addressed. We think we understand, but we often miss a lot of the nuance that has been addressed. And I think also if you are going to do a rewrite, like if that is in the plan, I would actually start with a refactor anyway because you learn so much. And you realize, oh, okay, so the reason why this is here is that there is this requirement that I did not know. And we have to address that in the new design. Because very often you only see the big bones. And then you think, oh, yeah, I'm just going to make a minimal viable product. And that's fine. But the moment you actually get the nuance of all of the real requirements, then, you know, your simple design kind of just like explodes and then suddenly what you thought would be an elegant rewrite actually turns out to be as bad or worse than what was there. I've seen that a lot in different developers, either people that I've employed or people in organizations that I've 
been part of or come in as a consultant on is that I see this like pattern of like kind of early on people are as software developers kind of have this, they're curious and they're learning a lot. And then there's like this point where they start to get a little maybe overconfident about their skill set and they become a little bit more critical and judgmental of other code and be like, knowing what I know now, I could do this simpler with this new thing and, you know, it'll be way quicker and then we'll be also getting to use this new technology or whatever at the same time or not maintaining this old thing. And then you hear about those rewrite stories that it's like three times the estimate that it took and maybe never even finished getting launched. See that pattern happen over and over and over. And then you talk to people that have been around the industry for 10, 15, 20 years and they're like, yeah, re- rewrites are always like the last option if, if possible. The point where you should think about a rewrite is when you are investing a lot of time trying to change something then I would say take the parts of the code where you're investing a lot of time to change and just try to like separate those out and do like maybe a rewrite right there. Because if you already have a team of like five people who are struggling to change something that is fairly small, then maybe it's time to say, okay, let's do a spike. Let's give it a go. Because at this point, you understand the code. Because if you've been trying to debug and develop features in the code for a few months or a year or more than that, you understand the problem well. But I wouldn't go like, oh, let's rewrite the world from scratch in something, another programming language. I mean, some people can afford to do that, but it's really expensive. (laughs) And the thing is, you have to deliver value in between as well. And people underestimate, like, you can have something written in COBOL that is making money, that is making money every day. And I've been making money for years. And people are like, oh, yeah, but it's all COBOL. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but you might have, like, this nifty little JavaScript uh, framework on GitHub, but you have, like, two users. This COBOL thing here, it makes a million dollars a day. I mean, you have to appreciate the fact that this code is working for for its existence. I'm not saying don't rewrite the COBOL. It might be hard to find (laughs) COBOL developers. But I'm just saying, yeah, I guess I agree with you. We we tend to become a little bit more humble as we've been bumped around a bit throughout our careers that we are less uh, overly confident. It's true. At least true in my experience. We'll be back with my conversation with Patricia in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I would like to take a moment to thank the production team behind Maintainable. In particular, thanks to Erica, who is our marketing manager here at Planet Argon, Dan, our fantastic editor, Christian, who did some early research for us, and Chloe, who was an intern at Planet Argon over the summer. I couldn't do this without all of your great work this year. Thanks for helping bring Maintainable to life. With that, let's get back to my conversation with Patricia Oss. What's one of the best lessons you learned early on in your career? Being wrong and being able to to be wrong. Because I, I think we're we're kind of set up that people were like, oh, you were wrong about this thing. And then people can't say, yes, I was wrong. <laughs> but I think if you're going to stay in this industry for a long time, you're going to make mistakes every day. You're making mistakes. And what we get really good at after a while, hopefully, is being able to be okay with making mistakes. And that's fine. And not being really defensive or angry about it. And even better, like being grateful that you caught it early. I had one time I had some QA come over to me and say, I found a bug in something you made. And they were really worried I would be angry with them (laughs) that they found the bug. And I'm like, 
I am so happy you found the bugs because I'd rather you find it here than my end users sitting at home not understanding why this is going on. It's like the earlier I can find out that it is wrong, then I can fix it before my poor end user is sitting there with this problem. So I, I think if, if there was something that I learned is being comfortable with being wrong. That's a good one. So with that, I just a couple of quick last questions. So what book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? There's a weird book. It has nothing to do with code. Perfect. I found it really interesting because I've never been like really good with people. But a lot of programming is actually people. It's an old book. It's like from the 50s. I think it's like the father of all like self-help books. It's called How to Make Friends and Influence People. Yes, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. It's a weird book. It has like all of these like old stories about all sorts of things. But I think it helped me in talking with strangers because I think talking with strangers is hard. But just being able to like simple things like people um, like talking about themselves. So ask them questions. And the thing is, I'm really interested in other people. So that's, you know, that's something I can do. Like I, I can ask them like, do you have a family? Do you have a dog? Where do you live? Are there any mountains around there? Like, what did you play when you were a kid? I don't know, like all sorts of things. And then you suddenly have something to talk about instead of sitting in awkward silence. That's a good suggestion. I remember one of my favorite facts about that. I think you mentioned, you think it's from the 1950s. Is that book was released in 1936. It's just, it's just like such an old book, yet it didn't feel like it dated itself at all. Yeah, it's, it's very like human. Of course, it comes from this idea of, of being for salespeople. And probably they have this issue a lot that they have to talk to, to people they don't know a lot. But I think we have to do that as well. We have to talk to many people like other teams, clients, end users at conferences, constantly having to interact with people that we don't know. And then having some guidelines helps. Or maybe I'm just a nerd and it's like, I don't know how to do something. Then I read a book, but you know, that's, that's there. It's true. So. There's an aspect of you know, something I think you were touching on a couple of your talks I was watching about being curious and learning to be a better version of yourself, probably as a human on this big planet, but also being curious about the people you're going to be doing work with and the people, you know, and, you know, I think sometimes I've always been a little cynical historically about self-help books, especially things like titled, like how to win friends and influence people. And I'm like, what? There's a part of me that when I read those types of books or think about reading those books that I'm just like, am I trying to game the system somehow? And it's like, but no, I'm actually curious about how to do this and I think the theme of that book wasn't to like how to win more sales necessarily it's like it had to be authentic you had to actually mean it and that's something he says a lot in the book but it's something that for me also is it really hit home because I'm really I I don't know how and I don't really want to know how to manipulate people what I want is to make real connections with people and and talk to them and and get to know them and learn the things that they have in their heads like this industry is full of like super super interesting super smart people who know like immense amounts of things but it's kind of hard to sit down and say like okay so i'll buy you a beer and you just talk to me for two (laughs) hours and just tell me all the things so you have an opportunity maybe to talk to somebody that you uh, really want to hear like what these people say and you have the privilege of having their time then then learning how to build a relationship with people and build a conversation 
I think is really valuable. But I have to say, like, that is like the only self-help book I'd ever actually recommend. So it's <laughs> a good one. So let's imagine that there's a there's a handful of listeners out there that are actually really curious to learn more about you, Patricia. Where can they find out more about you and your organization online? I have a blog-ish thing, a place where I put like all of my talks and, and I write some articles sometimes, which is patricia.no. So NO because I'm Norwegian. Um, so patricia.no, that's my personal website. And then turtlesec.no is the company website. If people want to get in touch or talk or something, then I'm most active on Twitter. So my handle is Pati underscore Gallardo, like the car, the Lamborghini. So, and my DMs are open. So if anyone wants to reach out and are a little bit shy and then just talk to me, I, I try to be nice most of the time. I appreciate that. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Patricia. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.